Welcome to The Week in IndyCar and the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Toronto Motorsports. We're going to talk about something cool they're doing here in just a moment. But first, we're going to introduce our guest. I think you've racked up the most starts, right? I don't know about wins on the podcast, Mike, but you definitely got the most starts, number of pole positions. Mike Hull, Managing Director of Chip Ganassi Racing. How are you this fine Wednesday morning? Uh, yeah, May, May 15th, uh, in the middle of the week, hump day for us uh, at the Speedway. Uh, all good, yeah. Getting ready to go again today. Mention our friends at Toronto Motorsports are doing something really cool, Mike. On Saturday, the 25th, at the uh, Indy Memorabilia Show, they're going to do a one-day pop-up show with uh, all the various... <laughs> t-shirt art that our man roger work has done with all kinds of crazy stuff there's going to be apparently a new robin miller t-shirt folks can buy uh, it's a one-day thing so definitely come and check that out right behind the pagoda starts at 8 a.m saturday morning and thanks again to cooper tires we put on at the indy gp we had a live podcast gave out a hundred plus free t-shirts a third anniversary mp podcast t-shirt i have to get you yours by the way mike although you're looking good in the ganassi gear today <laughs> uh, and then our friends at the justice brothers also have i think 500 keychains coming so it's all kind of give folks yeah, you know could i just say something about ed justice stuff. please uh, um you know i grew up in southern california so saw those guys in action but uh, he gave me a book uh about a month ago uh, it's one of those big, thick, looks like a coffee table book, but it's a history of just the Justice race, the Justice Brothers, and the Justice family, and and all that. It's a it's an amazing read. It is. It's really, really good. Really good. I love the guy. Love them, and I'm not saying that because they've come on as a partner of the show. Loved them for 20 plus years, and the little IRL card that I helped manage and engineer is actually on the cover in one of the little small photos. That's where we met 21 years ago when we came here, lost our sponsor like Ricardo Junco's has. And Kurt Cavan wrote us. I flagged down Kurt Cavan, uh, saw him walking through Gas- Gasoline Alley, didn't know him, but knew the face and said, hey. And uh, Kurt was really kind to write a story about this little team that had no money to continue. Uh, a lot of folks rang up, one of them being the Justice Brothers. And that relationship started there. So, and there's a great book about it. Their entire life, too. Yeah, I mean, so. their their family history in terms of uh, all versions of motorsports is uh, really wealth, really really worth reading. Yeah. Well, we got to get that Mike Hole autobiography going here sometime <laughs> soon as well. I got to got to fire up the keyboard. Uh, get, still working on the next chapter. All right, fair enough. <laughs> well, let's do this. We've got about an hour. Uh, again, we normally do well, we normally go a little bit longer, but there's this thing today called practice, and I believe you want to participate in that. We're going to try. And I don't want to have Chip sending drones here to blow me out of the sky for keeping you too long. So, we're just going to jump right in. Go to our man Craig Johnson who says, "Mr. Hole, the Indy GP from Saturday was a blast to watch." Uh, with the mixed conditions, playing Monday morning quarterback, did Dixie go too hard after the last caution and burn off the front tires? Should he have placed better? Was there a setup issue that maybe caused some of that? He says the broadcast guys mentioned him burning off the rear tires earlier in the race. He says good luck for the rest of the month of May. I assume the the, the uh, people in the broadcast booth uh, know more about us than we know. Um and I and I would also assume they're talking about the s- slicks, not wet tires. Yes. Uh, and uh, the reason that we had rear tire issues at the beginning of the race was we didn't start on stickers. We started on scrub tires. So, uh, and we went red, red, red there because we didn't think we'd ever get to black tires. 
and, and the only black tires that we got to were the ones that had treads on them. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, the wet tires for the race, um, I think Scott did a really, really good job, first of all, of setting pace. Uh, there was, really wasn't anyone with the exception of Pagano that could go faster. I'm not sure, you know, in a way, maybe for Pagano it was a blessing in disguise that he got held up a little bit by the people in front of him. Because he had speed, but with the speed he had, if he'd have displayed it too early, it might have been a different race at the end. Interesting. Um, uh, Scott's front tires were what gave up on him uh, for wet tires. But uh, the reality is is that you can always look at it in hindsight. Um, but I, I think in, in real time, we did a really, really good job there. And uh, uh, if anything, if we'd have given him a couple of turns of front wing, maybe it would have made a difference. But I don't know with the pace that Pagano had in reality, if we had that pace. Um, so uh, some, sometimes it feels like you're kissing your sister when you finish second. Uh, but, uh, uh, Hashtag kissing There were a lot of people that didn't finish second. So uh, we're happy with, with what happened there. I love you, Michael. You're the best. Uh, we're going to go to Brian Smith. <laughs> we answer this one almost on an annual basis, but I, it's also great, Mike, because we keep getting this, which tells mm-hmm. us we have new fans or those who want to learn more. Brian says, how much work goes into the team switching over from the Indy GP road course car to the car for Indy 500 practice just a few days later? I assume Ganassi has their 500 car mostly ready to go before getting to Gasoline Alley, but are you swapping the motor over from the Indy GP, et cetera, et cetera? So- um, it, it's a good question, uh, and uh, I've been asked that question a lot in the last couple of days. Uh, by fans wanting to know also. So they're paying attention to what goes on, which is really great. It's about a, I, Our rule of thumb is about 100 man-hours uh, to switch a car from one configuration to the next. Um, so And woman hours, too. And, and <laughs> female and male hours, yes. Um, and <laughs> we've, we've got uh, uh, several working for us that do a great job. The... Uh, um, some teams have one one race one primary race car and a lot of spares. Some teams have two race cars. Uh, so the complication for us only is that we have to switch two cars over because we have a race car and a spare car, and our our spare cars are always sitting in the in the in the transporter in the configuration that's being raced on the racetrack. So that adds to the complexity a little bit. And yes, we have parts ready in advance, uh, which in our case would be spares. A spare parts um, so it's a combination of refurbishing some of the parts that come off the car and uh, uh, changing out the difference maker the difference maker parts but uh, it's transmission suspension arrow those three major areas um, in our case the engine came out of the the car we road raced and went into the car we're going to oval race but the but the, our people Men and women uh, changed out parts on both cars to be ready for this week's practice, qualifying, and uh, and racing next week. Going to go to Jim Johnstone next. Says Marshall, it's great to see Elio back in an Indy car last weekend, and I look forward to seeing him run at the 500. But I'm curious, considering the success of Juan Montoya that he's had at the Brickyard, have you ever heard a reason uh, for why Penske is not putting him in a car for the month of May? don't know if i've ever gotten that hard answer jim but one or two things come to mind we know that after the team expanded to running four cars on a full-time basis there was a feeling that might have been a little bit beyond their comfort zone volume wise just stressing the organization a little bit more than they wanted 
stepping back to three full-time and adding one for the 500 seems to be their comfort zone. As for why JPM isn't part of the program as well, completely agree. If we're talking about someone whose record here is just ridiculous, would obviously be someone who you'd love to see in a car. would just say, keep in mind, if you're having to choose between the two, which is apparently what they're doing, you have one in JPM who has a vast career, but his actual time with Penske is rather short. There's not a lot of history, if you want to call it that. Elio, been there 20 years. Obviously a long-time relationship with Roger. So just there's something else to consider here. There's no question about is one more effective than the other. They can both win the race tomorrow. But I do know that if you look at the history, the unbroken history with Elio, I think it would be uh, it would be a strange thing, actually, if Roger chose uh, Juan Montoya, who's only been there a couple of years, compared to Elio, who seems like he's been, been there since day one. Let's go to Eric Franklin. says, Mike, good qualifying for Felix last weekend. Impressive, definitely, but not the result he wanted on race day. What did you see that Felix can improve on race day to convert better results? I think we're I think we're we're experiencing that together. Was Eric? Was it Eric? Yes, uh, Eric. I think we're experiencing that together. Um, um, I feel like if a race driver moves from <clears throat> excuse me from one formula to to the next, um, and they move to IndyCar racing. I think you see it all the time. Um, it takes a driver one year of racing at all the racetracks and then a year to, to capitalize on that. At least by the middle of the second year, that driver is, uh, if the driver's capable, that driver's running at the front consistently. And uh, uh, the pit stops are not unique to racing, but our pit stops might be. Um, and uh, it's a matter of sequencing all, th- all the way through the race. That's how you capitalize on qualifying. Um, and uh, uh, we tried to set him on fire on Saturday <laughs> to Indianapolis, which uh, we did a pretty good job of that, but he got through that. He won the uh, he won two <laughs> of the Zach Veach Johnny Blaze Awards. Yeah. Pit, and apparently those only get awarded on the Indianapolis pit lane. Uh, well, uh, we'd, we would prefer to pass that, along, that award along to somebody else, <laughs> but it didn't happen. Um, uh, tag, you're it. The, uh, uh, he'll come out the other side stronger. Let's go to, where should we go next? We've got a lot of great questions. We have more questions than we have time to answer them, so we're going to have to unfortunately sweep through uh, some good stuff here. Interesting one from Daniel Kincaid. What can a smaller team making their first appearance at Indy do to help maximize uh, their change of making the race? Their chances, I think, is what he meant to write. Uh, could Dragon Speed uh, basically spend the day getting their driver, rookie driver Ben Hanley comfortable then just practice more in qualifying trim and worry about race setup after they make the race. And how would a team do that? And how can you learn without the extra boost that comes on Friday? And that's something, honestly, Mike, I, I think we saw more on opening day than I can recall in quite some time. Many teams, not necessarily all the big teams, but a lot of the mid to smaller teams looking for gaps where they can do more solo running, knowing that it'd be folly to burn Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, working on race setup when we have more cars than ever in recent years are going to be going home. You'd, I don't know if you want to focus too heavily on May 26th when you, there's no guarantee you're going to be there. Any thoughts on how a team like Dragon Speed might try and shift their overall focus to outright speed this early in the show without even having race boost? Um, 
well, my opinion might be different than what was just reflected there in the question, the uh, or in the answer, your answer, Marshall. Um, I, I think the more laps you do in Indianapolis, the closer you are to uh, being able to race in the race. And once you're in the race, you'll do a, a better job. You can't, you cannot describe to a driver who's never driven here before all the things that that driver is going to go through up till qualifying and post qualifying. Uh, the driver has to just drive the racetrack and uh, we all get the same amount of engine miles we all get the same tires we we put fuel in the car in the same location Um, we have a Delara parts truck that uh, is an equal opportunity I'll sell you anything out of our truck program Um, I I think uh, you should fill your car up and uh, you should run all the way through those tires every time you go on the racetrack when you're learning it, especially in this case, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And you're going to experience what it's like going into turn one if you do that by Thursday because you're going to get such a toe going into turn one. That's what it's going to be like when you, when you, when you move the boost up. And if you wait until Friday to do that uh, or if you shy away from traffic until then, uh, you don't have an opportunity until the race to find out. With, the, with what's left of the rest of the week uh, because qualifying is a, a horror story some days and uh, Sunday's, I think, two hours of practice and then uh, Monday's two hours of practice. So by that time, you'd better be ready to practice. Uh, you better not find out how to practice, in our opinion. And, uh, you know, our rookie, what we did yesterday was we filled him up. And uh, when he did rookie orientation, we filled him up. And uh, if he gets a toe, so be it. Um, and it was funny yesterday watching the, the accordion sequence of people when they were running together when you thought the conditions were absolutely right. You had the wrong gears in there to get the number. <laughs> so uh, Yeah, we saw, was it Dixie's <laughs> car? You got, I think the, the NBCSN crew zoomed in on uh, changing the gear stack there, I think, yeah. on Dixie's car. Yeah, we, did, we, we were, we, frankly, we had the gears in last year that we raced with. Mm-hmm. And uh, we needed more gear yesterday, uh, but we didn't go any faster. It just that just happened to be the case. So, um, and it was probably the conditions yesterday. They were ideal. Uh, very little wind, so that 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 contributes uh, to fooling you a little bit uh, about what it's going to be like on race day. Uh, but I think all in all, you just. I think we did uh, with Scott. We did. I don't know. Uh, we went way past the term of the tires three times. Yeah. So uh, ninety-seven laps total for yeah Dixie. ninety-seven. So that was thirty, thirty, thirty probably for what we did there. Um, and uh, I, I think that's what you need to do. Got a couple questions here that follow along an interesting theme. And of course, Mike, I know your answer won't be in relation to Chip Ganassi Racing. Just maybe what you've heard from others. Wink, wink. <laughs> nudge, nudge. Okay. Uh, let's see. We'll go with, uh, well, both Paul Davis and Ed Joris have similar things. Paul says, can you tell us how much maybe a small team or a one-off team might learn about chassis setups on the cars at, say, a CGR or Andretti or Penske simply from walking by and clicking a few photos or taking some video on track? And Ed Joris asks something similar, saying, knowing how razor thin the margins for speed are here, uh, do any teams do any opposition research which might which might fall into that same category? So, have you heard of such things? <laughs> uh, oh, like with uh, our version of the NSA satellite? Exactly. Uh, yeah, we see it overhead I sometimes. Mean, I think everybody 
it was funny here a couple, three years ago. I can't remember who the photographer was. I think he was either from Andretti or Penske. He was spotted. And so the other people that had, had uh, spy photo, uh, photographers started shooting pictures of him, and his picture showed up in the bathroom. Uh, so uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, it happens. Um, but I think what you're trying to do is you need a time stamp on that to compare where you were at exactly. the end of the day. Exactly. Not, uh, not at that moment in time. Um, and what it does is it just provides avenue for discussion uh, with the engineering group as to what somebody might be doing that you're not doing, and then going back and comparing that to either your mechanical or aero notes to see uh, if you might be missing something. It's almost like a – it's just a check, you know, like, okay, on, we're going in the right direction. Oh, we're not. Um, I think that does help, and I think the size of the team, it makes a big difference. If nothing else, you look at the cars as they roll past you to their pit box with the arrow they have on them, uh, and then listen to your driver after the first run, you're going to know. The fun thing, too, just from a spotting standpoint, is if you see someone in or around your pit box who clearly isn't a fan, because you can kind of tell a fan, or maybe even just someone corporate side from a team, there's, it's usually pretty easy to spot someone who's a little bit out of place, who's hanging around <laughs> and looking, but doesn't really fit the model of fan, et cetera, et cetera. You go, huh, okay. Oh, and they're taking photos. Oh, they've got their phone out. You know, it's not too hard to spot that up close. On track, yeah. I mean, I know I get requests, not necessarily daily, but I get requests a lot from friends and former engineer pals and whatnot saying, hey, if you see this car, I'd love to know that. And, it's, it's not uncommon for those requests to be made. I think my favorite example of that all time was back when I was a young mechanic. Our boss, who was also a race car driver, was very curious as to why we were getting our butt kicked by a rival. And that team, this is before big haulers and putting the car inside the transporter at night. And so the car was just left up under the tent, under the easy up, covered up and whatnot, zipped up. But he, uh, we got in a little bit early, and he decided to go over, unzip the tent, crawl under the car, which was up on stands, take a look under it to try and see and peek around, look at whatever settings, whatever they might be doing differently. And the only problem was, I guess he didn't think team that owned that car would be showing up early as well <laughs> because they walked in the tent and found him with his legs hanging out from beneath their car <laughs> and uh quickly es- uh, escorted him away so yeah sometimes the uh opposition research is actually just crawling under the darn car uh let's see where should we go next tim reagan great question for you is there any time during may mike when you just take a moment to soak in the atmosphere and enjoy the experience um, I, I think you pinch yourself every day when you drive in the place. Um, you realize how special it is, and, and uh, you, you do think about, uh, uh, I do anyway, uh, having been here now uh, several years in a row, um, I, I think about all the things that happen and the friends that you develop and the friends that uh, are no longer with us. Uh, you, you, you sometimes uh, are reminded uh, in, in a positive way, really, about... Uh, why you enjoy IndyCar racing, and it starts uh, with uh, with the Speedway. Let's go to, and again, I'm having to choose through a lot of awesome questions here to try and make an hour show. Robbie Bergren, good one. 
this is more of a road course, street course thing that we hear about. Do either of you know what the root cause of camber shims falling out happens to be? Is it improper torque on the fasteners, fatigue, vibration? Mike, can you share what your team does to ensure camber shims don't fall out? Uh, we've lost a few. Duct tape. Lots of duct tape. Um, the original design of the car, uh, the thought process there wasn't quite right, um, but Delara re- has rectified that. And unless unless you let, unless one of your people are careless with what they do these days, uh, or if you're running camber that makes no sense um, in a particular application, it's actually pretty 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 good now. I guess we better knock on wood here. Uh, but uh, it's actually a lot better than it was originally with this car design. Let's go to Jordan Darwin. Hey, guys, are there any rear wing angle restrictions at Indy this year, or will teams have the full range of options at their disposal? Obviously, we know that there is a new allowance in terms of gurneys, but in terms of wing angle, struggling to recall anything new in terms of allowances. There's nothing new. Uh, I think I think the addition of downforce overall with the car will make racing better um, uh, because... As you get through a tire run, downforce is your friend. Um, so a friend of mine a long time ago, when we were standing out there qualifying, he said, a guy named Jim McGee, he said to me, just remember one thing that Indian, Indianapolis rewards, those who aren't greedy. And uh, so downforce is a, is a situation where greed is not your friend because you can take wing out of the car or you don't have to run a wicker on the car, that's not necessarily the fastest way around when you're you're on a 24-lap run. Um, so um, I think that uh, it, it's great that IndyCar has liberalized those rules, but I think you have to be uh, mature about how you're going to uh, react to those rules. Scott Hodgins asks, <clears throat> with Pato Ward signing with the Red Bull Junior Development Program, do you think we'll see any Red Bull branding for him on his Carlin Racing car this year, I did see on the good old Instagram that Pato posted an image of his new Red Bull branded helmet he'll be debuting this morning. I don't know of any plans for Red Bull in terms of actual vehicle sponsorship. I would say the press release that went out and what Pato has said publicly afterwards, it aligns Mike with a driver being selected by Red Bull. It's exactly what was presented compared to Oh, and this is a Trojan horse. Red Bull's going to, if Red Bull wanted to be an Indy car, they'd be here. There's no, you know, dipping of toes in the water. It was a very specific thing. We are signing up this kid. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen, although I think we should enjoy him while he's here. Um, if you're a Pato Ward fan, make sure to come out to IndyCar in 2019 because it'd be very surprising if he's still here next year. But so far, it is strictly a driver-based thing. Another thing I'll just mention quickly before moving on to the next question, Mike, and it was, I've heard on background, it was very impressive how the Red Bull team, Dr. Helmut Marco, reached out to Carlin Racing to inquire about speaking with Pato, and that just in terms of something you mentioned quite frequently, we don't poach people. We don't say, oh, we love this engineer over here, we're going to try and get on the phone and work up a secret deal. If that person becomes available, if they walk in the door, we'll talk to them. You've said that many times, but we all live in a small environment. We need to 
behave correctly. Just really in, good to hear on background, at least, that it sounds like things were absolutely correct between Red Bull and Carlin in how this came together. So good on them. Might also be an inference that some others who might have inquired about the kid services might not have had that same kind of community-minded approach. Let's see. Let's go to Kevin Frederico. says, Mike, any race event that you and Chip want to still tackle still? Uh, are there any races that you can think of that you guys haven't won that's on your bucket list? <laughs> well, this one again. The, um, uh, I think in motor racing, timing is what drives your next endeavor. Uh, and, and and then you have to go in with both feet. I, I think that uh, uh, Chip in it, Chip himself has been really lucky because he's gotten to do more than what any normal open-wheel owner would ever get to do. Um, and when he came at us uh, and said in 2003, uh, would really like to do sports car racing and, and let's go find an opportunity, and we did – uh, for a bunch of open-wheel people, that was a lot of fun. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've said it before. I, I think I'm way, way too mature now. <laughs> uh, so this is probably a statement that uh, probably is time-stamped. But uh, I would love to do Formula One the right way. But I don't, I don't see how you do that these days uh, because the right way seems to be the wrong way now in Formula One. Um, so uh, uh, other than that, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, there's been overtures from drag racing to chip. Ooh. Um, but, you know, you only have so many weekends. And um, when they make the schedules, they don't care if they conflict. So um, let's just take the Indy 500 today and work on that. Big Daddy Chip Ganassi. That sounds <laughs> like a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. Oh, boy. Again, we are blessed with great questions here. Uh Question for the two of us. Lots of discussions recently here in other media outlets about Porsche deciding not to join IndyCar as an engine supplier for the moment. Um, Curious about whether IndyCar needs to incorporate hybrid technology or some sort of electric-based propulsion to the next engine regulations to attract new suppliers. Curious if you think that's the right direction to go, Mike. I've been on record, and I need to actually push out the little opinion piece i've been threatened or i've been noodling on for a while on this very topic i don't know how often you and i have discussed this but i am not a huge electrified racing fan i do like my internal combustion engine i also know that i come from an era where that's all we had and you as well if you at least look for the boxes auto manufacturers are wanting to tick these days since you're in meetings in nascar imsa and IndyCar, I wonder if you can share any insights, any insights you might be hearing from either the racing series side or manufacturer side as to whether they think if we're going to sign up for more years, maybe we do need that hybrid box to be ticked. Well, uh, I don't think you have to be a um, clairvoyant forecaster uh, to understand what's, hap- what's coming quickly at us in the United States. Uh, um, and, you know, Rick Hendrick, one of Rick Hendrick's famous statements is, it's not about the money till it's all about the money. And uh, 
look what the look what the OEMs are presently doing. Look at uh, not the layoffs, the redirection, the changing of plants, all the other things. The fact that they're 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 going towards some form of non fossil fuel programs pretty quickly with the fleets of vehicles they're they're building. So whether we get money from a a car manufacturing or we get support, either one is going to be driven by the future technologies that are developing. So in terms of IndyCar, the engine engine rolls in 2022, at least that's the the plan right now. If IndyCar is not going to have some form of hybrid technology with the next version engine, whatever the next version engine is after that, they will not have engine. They will not have OEM support. That's my opinion, uh, and that would be the same for any form of uh, motor racing globally, whether it be Formula One, whether it be IMSA, whether it be the ACO. I, I don't think it matters if they're not. They have to go past looking at it. They're going to have to come up with something. It might be a common situation for all the manufacturers, but they have to do something because guess what? When the competition director for Ford, Chevrolet, Honda, whoever it might be, goes back to their to their board of directors and says, we need funding to build a new engine, what's the first question going to be? Does it match what, what, what we're going to have on four wheels that's coming under the showroom floor? So I, I believe it has to happen. I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know where they're going to go. But uh, IndyCar has a big opportunity here to set themselves apart. And in order for them to have a third and hopefully fourth, fifth manufacturer in this series, which they sorely need... They need to go to those manufacturers and say, we're well down the road with that as being part of our technical program in 2022. That's the key thing here. It's being able to show and tell manufacturers we are aligned. Wherever it is as an industry you are heading, we want to be there. Can't do it so it's recklessly expensive. We need to be intelligent about this. Money in motor racing right now is thinner than ever. So we need to be smart about this, but we need to make sure we give you what you need to be able to get that chief marketing officer, chief financial officer to sign off on it. And if the number one thing they're looking for is this today, electrification, that's what a series has to accept. I don't know what it will be five or ten years from now, but whatever that thing is, to have manufacturers, that thing needs to be number one on the list to get them to engage. So it changes constantly. I mean, seat belts was a thing at one point. Mike, do they have seat belts? Do they have disc brakes? Again, technology moves. It's just staying relevant to keep the manufacturers wanting to be there. Marshall, I think the the vi- the uh, the picture that people sometimes get is they get a picture of Formula E, which is a great racing series. Uh, which is fully electrically powered. And that's different than creating energy. So what we're really talking about here, I believe, is creating energy from, a, from another source other than the crankshaft of a, of a uh, uh, fossil fuel engine. Yeah. And that's the direction that the OEMs need to go for the future because that's the direction the car companies are going to go. Let's talk about future Scott Wharton, at, Scott Wharton asks, with all the talk about next year possibly going to Australia, maybe Japan, who knows, for an international race, what is the theory behind making it a non-points race? I don't know what IndyCar the teams would gain from making it a non-points event. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Mike? 
I can throw out a couple of ideas, but you've been through this many times, whether it's Brazil, Japan, you've been all over. Um, I think the prize money needs to be huge if you're not going to race for points. Uh, not, not a replacement of prize money, but it should cost uh, an international promoter uh, um, money spent in the right direction for the teams to be to be there. You know, every time we've gone to to a country outside the United States, including Canada, for that matter, uh, we get a massive crowd of people. Um, but it costs us money to go, and uh, we're put, we we put our people more at risk by going. Um, and uh, it's it's more difficult to recover when you come back based on the travel and all the other things. You know, Formula One, half of their races are in a container and half of their races are in a truck. So they don't do all their races in a container. Uh, so, But I suspect they would tell you the same thing, that it's more difficult to recover when you're in the container. Um, so I, I, I think that's important. But uh, as long as IndyCar has the, uh, the goalpost, keeping it between the goalpost of uh, February and uh, the middle of September, we can't... We can't do races in containers. We have our beloved people down the row who like to talk very loud to do their radio stuff. <laughs> One of the, I mean, the main point you mentioned there, Mike, is exactly that. If teams are going to fly somewhere and compete, there's going to need to be an incentive. Financial is primarily the incentive. And we know that because if we look at, say, the last couple of races in Brazil, there were either some cars that had full-season sponsors that were more or less sponsor list for the race because those sponsors said, great, pick the number. There's 15 races on the calendar. Our deal is going to be for 14 because we don't sell anything in Brazil. There's no value to us giving you money to be there. So if you can, please find something. And I just remember hearing from a lot of teams saying, if you know of anybody, 50 grand, we, whatever it is, we'll take it. We've got nothing for that. If IndyCar is going to want to send the series somewhere to compete possibly out of a market where sponsors i don't know how many pnc banks there are in japan for example if we're going to send cars somewhere there's going to have to be a financial benefit not just to cover the costs of competing but actually as you mentioned to add to the bottom line so i think that's also been part of the challenge there's lots of places that would love to have indycar but to get the teams there there's going to have to be an incentive above and beyond enrich that leader circle to a level that would make folks want to turn up and play that would be nice because it hasn't been enriched since it started let's go to brett ross mike being a southern californian what's your best riverside raceway story and did you ever race there (laughs) let's see i did race there um watching uh dan gurney and jim clark uh together on the racetrack at the same time uh, in 19, November 1967 mm. uh, was probably, in my mind, uh, uh, and getting to meet Clark there, pro- probably, in my mind, the greatest thing that I ever saw at Riverside because their drive style, you, you could have overlaid their drive styles. And uh, uh, they were so different from the people who were equally qualified to race there in terms of being heroes. Uh, but uh, 
their their drive styles were such that uh, uh, they created so much speed off the corner, but it, you had to look to figure out how they were doing it. Um, it, it, it was a lot of fun to, to watch, and I uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, they were on the front row together there, um, and uh, I think Clark had an engine problem or something that put him out of the race about halfway through, uh, and Dan won the race. But uh, uh, that, to me, was the, the ultimate memory from Riverside. Let's go ahead and switch over to Twitter. We just spent the first section here with Facebook questions. Adam Corlett asks something that has been posed many times on social media just in the past 24 hours, and I think it will continue on the subject of those outside the U.S., outside North America, who want to check in and watch Indy 500 practice and are unable to. So Adam says, why is there no way for those of us outside the U.S. to watch Indy 500 practice? I'd be willing to pay money to watch, but there's literally no <laughs> legal way for me to watch this year. 100% accurate, Adam. And for those that didn't know, it, we raised this immediately when this live streaming package was announced. I don't have all the details, and I don't want to turn the rest of the 20 minutes we have, Mike, into a soapbox moment. I'll take half a step on the soapbox though for a moment just to mention i don't understand i don't have all the picture of how this came to be but i have heard that in terms of the over the top the digital streaming solution that has been created instead of being something that was articulated at every level by the series mapped out to be exactly what they wanted from what i have heard from more than one source that this was essentially I don't want to say just handed off but more or less given over and NBC has come up with this gold package which is great for those of us who can access it here in the United States I don't know if there was enough forethought to realize oh wait a minute folks have become accustomed for years to going to IndyCar.com pulling up the timing and scoring page seeing timing and scoring, and having the live stream that they can watch for free. No geo-blocking, etc. Turning off that ability, and also giving those on an international level, Mike, no chance to watch what we do. There's no service they can pay for, as Adam raises. I don't know if IndyCar fully grasps the damage they are doing to themselves and the potential severing of long-term fans, and again, as someone who gets a lot of tweets and whatnot from folks saying, hey, how can I? What Am I going to have to do some pirate thing to do this? Why am I being for? I would pay. Why are you forcing me, if I want to remain connected to your series, to do things that I don't want to have to do? One thing I haven't heard, Adam, to close, and maybe I just need to keep asking, is will there be some sort of interim short-term solution just for the month of may since it's our big rallying cry to pay attention to us each year i just hope that we aren't turning off a lot of people who've been fans for one year 10 years their entire lifetimes because we just really didn't put enough thought into this when we were forming this streaming solution in the new all nbc era um it's lack of access It's not really the way the world works today. Folks expect to be able to get any and everything they want, whether they have to pay for it or not. Just the fact that no access is being provided or allowed, yeah, that's never going to be great. Uh, 
very important question coming in from Andy Hallberry. <laughs> my question from Mike, who had more potential of the guys you've worked with, Scott Dixon or racer founder Paul Fanner? <laughs> Paul Fanner had a lot of, uh, of uh, promise. You tell this story yeah. every at least once a yeah, year on we, the show, we talk but about please Paul. tell it again. Your, you your know what? classic entry in his, his driver's logbook when he was going through driver's <laughs> school. Please share that story for those who haven't heard it. Oh, my God. Uh, I'd forgotten all about that, but I'd forgotten about a lot of things. Uh, and uh, a couple of years ago in Indianapolis, he invited me to dinner with, a, with a, at that time, the person who ran the SCCA. And he, he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out his SCCA dr- driver's logbook. And I had been his instructor at the SCCA driver school to try to pass him. So he could continue on his quest to race Formula Fords. To try to pass it, yeah, I like right. the phrasing there. <laughs> and, you know, he did a good job. Uh, but in those days, you know, you had a ton of Formula Fords, so you, you, you had a big comparison for drive style immediately uh, when you were given about a dozen of these people that were driving race cars. And I think, I think it was written, Marshall, you can probably help me, but I think I said something about uh, 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 needs work on the corners, great on the straightaways or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but you know what Paul has done is that uh, he's set himself apart uh, in the j- journalistic world in lots of different ways. And he understood, I, th- I think what you have to do is you have to understand what you're good at, not what you want to become better at. And what he's done is he's, he has compounded what he's really good at. Um, and uh, you could see when I met him very, very early, I think I met him originally in 1971 or 72, uh, and he was this wide-eyed young guy, kind of like I was, uh, or we all were at that time. And uh, we all wanted to achieve different things in motor racing, and he figured out where he could achieve it. Um, and I compliment him for what, uh, what he's accomplished, uh, in this case with Racer Communications, and uh, as well as all the other things that he actively pursues. And uh, when he gets hold of something, uh, he makes it better. Overstating the obvious here, but without Paul Fanner, we have no Racer Magazine now celebrating its 27th, 28th, I forget what year, but <clears throat> amazing tenure, really the only and final true racing magazine standing uh, that covers you know, all the key series here. There's no Robin Miller here. There's no me. There's no many people here, all because of Paul, what he has created, but also what, and this is not blowing smoke, this is being very honest, I think I work hard, and then I wake up and see Paul on the same time zone as me in California with emails sent to me or whomever two or three hours earlier and two or three hours later. So it's someone who's uh, many years older than me who's been doing this forever at a time where, in theory, you'd think the person might be ramping down, cruising a little bit. This guy's working harder than any of us, not just to keep Racer afloat and going, but trying to take it to new levels. That's just a constant for uh, form of inspiration. Let's go to... Stefan Straub has two good questions for us here. First one is, Mike, how has practice for the Indy 500 changed for the Chip Ganassi team now that you're only running two cars compared to the four you had previously? He says, does only having two cars collecting data slow down the decision-making process, say, compared to a four-car team like Penske? 
Well, I've never been inside the walls of Penske Racing, so I can't really answer that part of the question. Uh, and that's not a flippant way of answering it either. Um, I, I think it's what you make of it, no matter how many cars you have. Uh, having just one car certainly is not, does not help you because you're comparing yourself to yourself. So unless you have an alignment with somebody, that's, that, that's a serious uh, uphill battle. In our case, uh, uh, we work really, really hard with our engineering group, with our drivers, to understand how we read the racetrack, number one, and number two, how we compare and and uh, satisfy the needs that we have for, in our case, a driver who's learning how to get around the speedway and a driver who's been around the speedway. But I think we're doing a good job of that. Um, and, and I think to answer the question uh, maybe secondarily is that uh, – uh, you develop the software that's important for you to be able to analyze your particular drivers, no matter how many you have. Um, and we've done it in all different ways. We've done it two, three, four, four, three, two, mm. um, and uh, we're happy to do it again if we if 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 the need arises or if it's important to do it more than two. But uh, right now we concentrate on two, and uh, we do a good job of that. I think. Not too bad from what I've heard. There's reports on the internet saying that. Another question from Stefan. He says, after a run here, I often see pit crew members inspecting the tires while they're still on the car, spinning them and scratching an X into them with what looks like a screwdriver. What are they looking for, and what is the reason for scratching the X? Obviously, tire punctures here at the speed that drivers are traveling. It's a constant fear, concern, thing to safeguard. So when a car comes to a stop and those tires are staying on, yes, it's absolute standard practice for the crew members responsible either for their corner or could be a different person to just physically stop, spin the tires slowly and look for any cuts, any nicks, any anything that might warrant taking them off the car. And then it's also just a uh, good habit of practice. It's usually not a, a blade screwdriver it's usually a phillips or something that doesn't have a sharp edge just to mark some form of little x or something as a note that this tire has been inspected so we did uh you know i would say one time and uh firestone's does such a terrific job but they had a it, and it wasn't in an, at indianapolis uh it was a race prior to indy and they had, had a new young aggressive uh person who did tire temperatures at the time we do less of that because we have that now electronically red for us infrared stuff uh, but uh he would go around with a pyrometer and uh poke the tires and then go to the next tire and the next tire and our guys had the car up in the air spinning the tires and they kept finding these small marks in the tires <laughs> uh and uh you know he was putting holes in the tires and uh so as, as he went around they were following him and <laughs> took us a couple of sets of tires to figure out that he was just being over-aggressive. But typically they look for uh, indentation in the tire, uh, especially at a place like Indianapolis, because even a slow leak at Indy causes the balance to change. Because you have to realize that the tires we run, uh, the spring rate of the tires in the sidewall. And uh, when you begin to lose air pressure, the balance changes enormously. Uh, so And the cross weight changes. So Crossweight's what drives you through the corner, and uh, you definitely want to avoid a problem. For those young engineers, young drivers, doing your own tire temps, using a pyrometer, don't stab the tires. That's what Uncle Mike <laughs> has told us this Just, day. Just uh, don't be, yeah, don't be aggressive with it. <laughs>
Great question here from Chris Alfby, who also sends in questions to our Week in Sports Cars show. He says, Mike, how does someone get into working in motorsports on the team side, like a strategist or a team, even team personnel at the track? Um, I think like a, any other industry, uh, you have to befriend someone either through human, in, in our case these days, we have a human resources director, which I never thought we'd have when I first started uh, working in motor racing. Um uh, and that's not a luxury. It's 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 it really keeps us all straight. The um, I, I think you, you have to you have to befriend somebody. Uh, you have to send in resumes. You have to be very persistent. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, there's a famous story about uh, Carl Edwards, uh, and when before he drove trucks. Um, he would go. He figured out which day of the week Jack Roush flew from uh, Detroit to uh, Concord, uh, North Carolina, and and go in the office. And Jack, in those days, would come right in the front door, and Carl would be sitting there to meet Jack, and uh, would simply say, "Hey, I want a chance to have a, a tryout in your truck." And Jack then started coming in the back door on Mondays or Tuesdays or whatever <laughs> day that week it was. And finally he said to the girl up front, is that guy sitting up there in the front? And he said, yeah. And, and then he said to, I think it might have been Pemberton, I can't remember who was working there at the time, whenever we do the next test, let's just run this guy so we can go Get on to the next guy. And uh, they found out how good he really is. And I, and I think that's what it takes in motor racing. You have to be persistent, and then you have to, but then you have to be able to back it up. Um. Let's go to, good Lord, this is, it's an awesome problem to have. Let's go to Andy Merrick. Says, how can a fan, Mike, better appreciate the various racing lines at IMS? What tips do you have to appreciate the difference between how drivers work through the turns? How can we become more informed viewers? You know, I've never driven here. Um, um, so I don't quite know how to answer that question, Andy. We're going to get the Formula Ford out here for you. Yeah, right, exactly. That would be great. The, uh, but I, I do remember one thing, and I think we talked about this. I'm not remember. When somebody asked about Montoya, if you've had some episode in the past, Marshall, whatever, you could probably tell Homestead, me I believe. Was. Yeah. Uh, when uh, we, we came here in 2000 and did USAC rookie orientation with Juan Montoya, uh, Rick Mears came down from watching up on in the grandstands, came and found me, and he said, in all the years at Indianapolis, including myself, and I would consider myself one of the ten, I've only sent, seen ten people that can drive the line that he does, and that's the correct way to get around this place. Um, and uh, uh, maybe somebody, maybe you should look at that Go find that in a video somewhere, and maybe that Andy would help you to start with, and then you can compare that to other drivers. Uh, you know, we've had some terrific drivers that have driven us for us, you know, people that are well at the top of their game. And uh, um, there's a lot of video evidence of that. I, I, I think that's what you need to do, and then come out to the speedway and sit in a corner and see what happens. Other oh, couple of quick things, Andy is. Every driver has their handling preference. Some like to load the right rear tire heavily, so you'll see those folks tend to turn in late, go longer on the straightaways before turning in. 
load the rear of the car, feel that, and then work that. Montoya, I believe, that is one of his secrets to his speed. There are a couple of drivers, some drivers that do that. There's some others who prefer the opposite. They prefer to turn in early. They like a little bit of understeer and then to manage that. If you were to turn in late, it really wouldn't give the opportunity to manage the car like that through the corners. Both can be fast. Both can win races. Both have won races. The turn-in points, definitely something to notice, especially in turn one, definitely in turn three, maybe less turn two and turn four. But just getting a feel for how, with a big amount of speed, drivers are looking to turn and then navigate and manage that car's speed through the corner. That's really where you can start to pick out styles. And again, we're not claiming one style is is going to win, the other style is going to lose. It's just these are very innate things that make sense to drivers. And in most cases, it's not something where they started driving race cars at some point and then said, which style shall I choose Uh, It's like swinging a baseball bat. Of course, you can have a hitting coach tweak a little thing here or there, but for the most part, the way you pick up a bat and start to swing it, you're probably going to be doing something very similar for the rest of your career, again, with little modifications. Same thing with driving style. And so there will definitely be some line changes. As a car is either handling the way a driver does or does not want, they will adjust their line to try and accommodate either to mitigate some of the issues they're having or amplify the things that are working well but it's fairly rare to see one guy turn in very late one day and super early the next and just randomly picking and choosing lines it tends to be some sort of innate thing that makes sense to them so that's the thing i'd be looking for Uh, and who knows knowing andy that you tend to be someone who pays fine attention to things and takes great notes maybe come back can come back to mike and i with a note of who's turning in the latest, who's turning in the earliest, which one's too hot, which one's too cold, this one's just right, and little little red riding hood. You know, I would just say this, uh, and, and, I, and I found it amazing. Uh, the first driver who drove for, for us that was really fast at Indianapolis for four laps was Ari Leyendijk. And uh, he put a piece of tape on the center of his steering wheel, and everybody thought it was so that he could judge the push in the car, the understeer. That wasn't what it was. It was so he could judge at the exit of the corner how far to the right he was turning the wheel. Mm. <laughs> now think about this. At Indianapolis, you want to turn the wheel to the right coming off the corner. Um, that just free, it really frees the car up if you get the car right, right? Oversteering at Indy with yeah, R.A. Lund. Not, not oversteering. Just you have a neutral car. Sure, sure, sure. And, and all you're doing is just freeing up the front wheels just slightly just to gain that extra little exit speed out of, out of two and four. And also the short shoots. So um, when you think about that, now we had, we've had drivers since that time that if you ask them to do that, they'd go home. <laughs> so, uh, but they were equally as fast. So it is, you know, it is how you want to drive your race car at Indianapolis that uh, creates speed. There's a reason we call him Harry Lunatic, <laughs> uh, this being one of them for sure. Well, Mike, we're uh, we're at about the ten o'clock hour where we need to let you get back to work here. Let's go. It'll to be seven a.m. in California, Marshall. No wonder I'm sleepy and also <laughs> still guzzling down coffee. Not a joke here. Uh, let's go to our final question. Uh, that being from uh, Alpin Man on the good old Reddit IndyCar group. This is one maybe you can share with us. Just some of the things you appreciate. He or she. 
although man is in their name. The Reddit screen names are just amazing. I never have a clue who or what they are. It says, I'm going to my first 500 this year. I see a lot of questions asking, what should I do? But do you have any suggestions on what not to do? So, I don't know, Mike, maybe there are some traditions or things at the Speedway around uh, this, this fan might enjoy. But are there any things you're like, okay, don't do that? Well, I think if your instincts tell you not to do it, you better, you better not do it. We know one. a Taco Bell to avoid, uh, for sure. Well, uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, Steve Shunt uh, laughing in the background, the man with the loudest voice video, in the world. Uh, Dario sent us a video last night of driving past that Taco Bell. He did. Yes. Um, He's getting brave. <laughs> Um, I don't know. You know, the thing I always think about the things that you want to do at Indianapolis and the things that I really, really love to do. You know, Saturday night in Indianapolis, I love Georgetown Road. I love the separation of the guys with the uh, uh, with that are total have been drinking for four or five days or are are probably going to make the race. I don't really know. Uh, um, I love the atmosphere of Indianapolis. I love everything about it. I, I, lo- I love the, uh, the, the generational thing that happens here. Mm. Uh, people who are meant to be mature people uh, came with their fathers or their grandfathers and so on. And, and, and I love that part of it. I don't think you can go wrong uh, by whatever you choose to do in Indianapolis. Um, and, it, and it isn't always the shortest line. right? It might be the longest line that, that gives you the most, the, most, the most fun at the end of the day. Um, so I would, I would soak it in. Uh, I would soak it all in. In terms of what not to do. Uh, I would say don't get I, arrested, I would, but here's that what might I would, be fun. If you come for the Indianapolis 500, do not. Uh, I, I would wait for Tuesday for my plane flight in return if you want to watch the race. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to rain this year, but I wouldn't have it Sunday night. I wouldn't have it Monday. I'd have it Tuesday just so that you can stay to watch the race. And guess what? On Monday, you can sit whatever, wherever you want. <laughs> and uh, that's one thing that I would definitely do. Uh, and, when, and you come one time, you'll come back for the rest of your life. I'll throw this in as just it's, a, it's not so much a what to do in terms of location, but maybe mindset that I think is very unique to Indianapolis. And that is I saw someone post somewhere in social media saying, hey, I want to come out for the 500, but I'm kind of shy, and I don't really have any friends that are into IndyCar, so I'd like to be there, but I feel like I might be kind of alone, and since I'm shy, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy. And someone responded to that person with a great note that I hadn't really thought of in this way, which might be of value for you here. And it's the average fan in the stand has some sort of story some sort of pride on history and tenure here. I'm the fourth generation of my family to come and watch the 500. My family's been sitting here in the such and such turn in this stand for 32 years. This is our 33rd. My grandma, grandpa, uncle, you name it, everyone comes out. We meet up here. It seems like in almost every, you know, almost every case, walking around, going to different places within the facility if you can sit or stand in various places i know it might sound a little simple but just striking up conversations with folks you are going to find that you are connected to decades upon decades of really interesting stories and people 
there's a communal aspect to those who come to the Indy 500 and take pride that they're a part of the fabric of this thing that I don't really see at almost any other motor race that I attend throughout the year. So I think that might be something you can enjoy quite a bit. I know Bill Marvel, for example, a longtime USAC man who's been around forever. We're going to do a podcast here. This is his, his 75th consecutive attendance at the Indianapolis 500. I mean, that's just phenomenal, Mike, but it's those kinds of stories throughout the facility where you go, oh, cool, I can see the stars, I can see the cars, I can see all these things, but it's one of these rare events, Mike, where the actual people attending are actually kind of sort of part of the story too. So that might be a really interesting way to connect yourself even further on your very first visit. Well, I really think the guy that you that you work with, uh, Mr. Miller, should probably go sit up in the turn four grandstands with those people because he would be able to immediately draw that out. Um, and uh, uh, I love the fact that he does uh, stories about people. I've always enjoyed those stories the most from Robin. Um, and uh, he finds something in people that nobody else does. Um, and he understands what exactly what you're talking about by coming here all the years he has. Uh, I just remember when I came here the very first time, uh, how much in awe I was of, uh, of uh, how how much the people embraced the event, mm. um, and uh, how important it is to them to return. Um, yeah, I said I, I was at a dinner. It had nothing to do with motorsports in any way whatsoever. Uh, these proper business people. And, uh, you know, all dressed up business people. And uh, um, and I'd been invited to go to this dinner with a friend of mine. There was this person sitting across the table who was a banker. And it didn't have anything to do with PNC. And uh, when he found out what I did, I'm sure if his human resources director found out what he does when he comes to Indianapolis... <laughs> oh Lord! Uh, they would be surprised, um, but uh, I think people come here and they just in, just totally embrace and enjoy the event. And uh, uh, and I do have another friend who is the grandson when he originally came, and now I think he's the same thing. He's come for thirty five years straight, um, and he came as a kid to begin with, and now he has the seats. Uh, they continue to go up in the uh, in the groundstand area as people you know as people above decide no longer to come. I guess I don't know what they do, uh, but uh, yeah, he he'll be here this year again with his with his two sons. So it's uh, and the, and his grandsons. So uh, it's it's a generational thing. It's a lot of fun. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for, I think I have to name you formally the managing director of the Marshall Pruitt podcast because, you know, <laughs> you, you, you're, you've earned many days off from the many hours you've put in already. But kidding aside, thank you, my friend, for always making time, not just for me, but most importantly for our listeners who really enjoy connecting with you, learning more, hearing some of the stories, all brought to us by our friends at Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Thanks, Marshall. Now, should I have been recording this? Oh, I sure hope so.